safety first, do we live in a cotton wool society? Okay, so I'm Claire Fox, I'm the director of the Institute of Ideas. When we were putting together the program, we were thinking about some of the kind of key issues that were uh, being debated or discussed, and we wanted to kind of dig a bit deeper into some concepts. So we've just done a panel discussion on diversity, does it matter? And now we're on safety. And some of these things appear obvious, you know, diversity of course is a good thing, safety of course is a good thing. But we wanted to talk about what happens when these things become trump cards or values that you're kind of nervous about uh, uh, arguing against. And if you think of some of the big issues that have happened in the UK or in Europe in the, in the last period of time, we've had something like the absolute tragedy of the Grenville Tower fire, uh, where obviously the issue of safety has been very much at the fore of that. We've had some terrible terrorist outrages, some Islamist activity on the streets of London that have taken people's lives, and inevitably one wants to discuss how you stay safe in the face of such barbarity. And in something completely unrelated, say like medicine, you'll have a, a big worry at the moment that, for example, we're going to be immune to antibiotics, you know, something that we think keeps us safe, and we've been taking it so much that we now can't rely on it anymore, and we're told, even though it's good for you to take antibiotics, don't take antibiotics because then it won't be good for you anymore. So there's a lot of issues here. It's an absolutely impossible task to ask anyone to cover the range of things that we've asked them to do, but we're effectively talking about whether we're too risk-averse, whether safety is being used as an end at the expense of common sense and at the expense of freedom. I've tried to get people from different expertise and perspectives. There's a few people who are maybe more on the libertarian side and a couple of people I asked to kind of come and at least kind of put in the odd word for the odd regulation, um, but we haven't done it as a for and against. It's not like, are you for and against safety, or, <laughs> uh, uh, or are you a risky type, or what have you. People actually work in different areas of uh, public life, so I think that we've got a kind of good cross-section. And We've also got an international panel as well, which is a good uh, thing. Um, I, I wanted to just uh, start with a quote from Billy Bragg, uh, the activist and singer somebody who I don't agree with on anything, and I don't like his music, but apart from that. <laughs> and I never thought I'd be quoting him at the start of a panel, but there we go. He posted something on Facebook um, with a photo of the Grenville Tower burning up in flames, and he said, the next time you hear someone complaining about health and safety, or whinging about too much red tape, or demanding that for every new regulation introduced, three are removed, think of this image and pray for the people of Grenville Tower. And I read that to you because actually, when I read that on Facebook, I didn't go, oh, that's awful, or anything. I thought, I'm one of those people. I'm the whinger about health and safety and regulation. And I looked at that fire and I thought, am I culpable in any way for saying that we're over-regulated as a society? So, although I don't want to talk about Grenville the whole time, I think there's a useful backdrop mm. to remind ourselves, just for those in Britain, that that is a shadow that hangs over this debate of what can happen. So I don't want to be overly glib because there's a sort of serious side to this and, and, and so on. Anyway, let me introduce the panel in the order in which they'll speak. First of all, we'll be hearing from Professor Bill de Rodier, who's the Chair of International Relations at the University of Bath. He's previously held posts in Canada and Singapore, 
at the Defence Academy in the UK and the War Studies uh, uh, Group at King's College. He's an Associate Fellow of the International Security Programme at Chatham House. Not anymore. Not anymore, <laughs> uh, formally. And, um, and in case they're listening. But the big thing about uh, Bill is that he's done some exemplary work and very interesting work over the years on our attitudes to risk, and particularly in relation to terrorism, but not just that, uh, risk more generally. So I'm delighted to have him here. Then we're going to be hearing from, from Lenore uh, Skenazi, who is uh, America's worst mum. Uh, we always like to invite the lively ones <laughs> over. And she featured on the front page of The Spectator um, uh, this week, actually, uh, writing some of, about some of her ideas. She made in for me when she let her nine-year-old ride on the subway alone, and that led to yeah. effectively setting up a movement called Free Range Kids. And she's now launching a new initiative, Let's Grow, with Jonathan Hyatt, that's based on the idea that college students feel less fragile if they're given more freedom. And so her whole issue around whether we're worried about children and safety is obviously a hugely important and interesting perspective. We're then going to hear from Terry Barnes, who is a principal at uh, Cormorant Policy Advice in Australia. So he's gone a very long way to be with us. We're delighted to have you. He's a fellow of the Institute of Economic Affairs, which is a UK organisation, but he's kind of the Australia wing. And he looks at lifestyle economic issues, uh, questions the nanny state. Former special advisor to two Australian health ministers, including Tony Abbott, who went on to become uh, Prime Minister. And he writes regularly on health and politics for the likes of the Australian edition of The Spectator. We're delighted to have you here, Terry. We're then going to hear from Richard Angel, who is the director of Progress. Progress is an important voice in the Labour Party. It's not all just momentum in the Labour Party at the moment. And Progress represents a different kind of approach to politics. Let's put it that way. Richard is the founder of the Three Seats Challenge and has run marginal seats campaigns for Labour both in the UK and in Australia, as it happens. So he and Terry can argue over that later. He uh, was elected as a member of the TUC's LGBT committee, a former trade union official, formerly of the all-party uh, parliamentary group on combating anti-Semitism. And Richard and I argue over everything and uh, <laughs> done so on television, various other things. But actually, the more I've sort of looked at the work of progress, the more impressed I've been at their open-minded approach to politics, and so I'm glad to have him here. And also, he recently was caught up in a terrorist uh, outrage himself. He infamously went back the next day and paid the bill and gave them a tip. Got named as kind of one of London's bravest Londoners or the, the other day as a consequence. But in that sense, both as a Labour Party policy type, but also just personally has kind of encountered what it's like when you uh, face uh, the challenges of uh, safety. And then finally, Dr. Claire Gerarda, who's a medical director of the NHS Practitioner Health, which is a confidential service for doctors and dentists with mental health and addictive issues, former chair of the Royal College of General uh, Practitioners, awarded an MBE in 2000, 2013, listed as one of the 100 most powerful women by Women's Hour, a great honour, and also is regularly kind of mentioned in the top influential Londoners or medics and a whole range of things. She openly admits she's a media tart. She's certainly a battle of ideas tart. Uh, she regularly speaks. She's already spoken once this morning. The thing about Claire is that she consistently, in the time that we've known her, which she's judged debating matters or sixth form debating competition and spoken at things, she will always argue, argue what she thinks, be prepared to stick her ideas in and stir it up. So we couldn't not have her, really, could we? Uh, can we give them all a very warm welcome? Bill.
Claire's already identified how this subject area is a vast arena and it really covers everything from Bristol City Council sending its council tenants a flyer through their letterbox in 2006 advising them to remove welcome doormats from their entrances because they were tripping hazards to uh, the discussion many people have had about whether your children can still play conkers at school, if they, if they even know what that means. Um, two very serious matters that Claire's touched upon, government advice on what to do in a shooting incident, run, hide, tell, uh, and Grenfell Tower, which I will come to uh, at the end of my um, short comments. And I think because it's so vast, I'm not going to dwell on any one aspect. Uh, I think because to me, what, it, what really matters is not the specifics of any one of those debates or any other debate you may have, which, taken in their own terms, may appear relatively or entirely reasonable. Um, and Claire's already hinted, who could possibly oppose being safe? But rather, I think what really matters in this discussion is that safety and precaution have become an integral part of our cultural landscape. Uh, that we just assume it uh, without even thinking about it too much. And while we may choose to assess risks in order to be safe, you may decide whether to let your little children play rugby or whatever it is. Um, I think what happens to us when that assessment is imposed upon us from outside is what really matters to me when safety become something that you is, take, is removed from you uh, at your arena of choice. So from public health to counter-terrorism, climate change to child safety, there is a profusion of agencies, official and unofficial, that are constantly seeking to raise our awareness uh, about safety issues and modify our behavior for our own good. Now, if you issue a warning, whether you're an official or an unofficial organization, it presumes a negative outcome if it goes unheeded. And so one of the things it does is it transfers responsibility, which some people, I think, rightly increasingly interpret as authorities refusing to accept blame themselves or to be held accountable. It's also the case that in the past, and it remains the case today, we may dispute the evidence that's presented to us about safety risks or hazards, uh, or the interpretation of that evidence, or even the intention behind giving us the evidence. Um, and I think that's increasingly evidenced by uh, examples where people are deemed to be complacent in their approach to safety because there is a great deal of warning fatigue. Uh, and even we find acts of deliberate defiance in relation to safety. You say, that's, a, that's unsafe, I'm going to go ahead and do it. And the authorities usually label those responses maladaptive because they've swallowed a few too many pseudo-psychological terms. Um, and I think it actually reflects an unwillingness on their part, and even an inability sometimes, to think of our actions in moral or political terms, that they have to uh, adopt a kind of psychological term to explain it. But the unfortunate truth is, in our supposedly post-truth society, that most people do not act on the basis of evidence alone. Rather, uh, we ought to take their values and their beliefs into consideration and recognize and respect 
their ideas and independence. I think protectionist paternalism reflects a rather low view of ordinary people that becomes self-defeating. The consequences, some of which I've touched on, are overreaction to warnings, habituation, and fatigue. And that derives not from any specific case of safety, but rather the cumulative impact of hearing that something is bad for you every single day of the week. You know, on a Monday, it's a, child sne uh, a swan sneezing in Scotland. On a Tuesday, it's a terrorist attack. On a Wednesday, it's what you're eating. And it goes on and on in cycles. And I thought it also points to a growing divide between the people who advise us about safety and the people who have to go about living their everyday lives. So Lawrence Friedman, who became the uh, vice, uh, I think one of the vice chancellors of the King's College London, in response to the Foreign Office advice to people not to travel to Bali after the Bali bombs in 2002, noted himself how little can be achieved through exhorting people to behave in particular ways. And rather, he pointed to the need for government to share a sense of strategic framing with the public. And I think in the past, we'd agree with that. We'd have called that politics. Um, I think above all, we need to move beyond uh, a sense of, uh, well, we need to move beyond an obsession with safety and the threats that we're confronting towards what it is that we want to be safe for. And there's very little discussion about the, what happens afterwards. Rather, safety becomes the end in itself. The United States seems to want to repackage itself as the land of the safe rather than the land of the free. I think exhorting and nudging elides critical engagement from people, it loses support, and actually, it's not the public who are complacent, but rather the people who think that the public are complacent, who are. When choices are made for us, it prevents us from becoming more knowledgeable about them, it allows us to evade accountability, that wasn't my choice. Uh, it's also demoralizing in the real sense of the word, in as much as it prevents you from developing your moral sense of autonomy and responsibility. Official pronouncements become increasingly remote exhortations from alien authorities, just like the warnings on cigarette packets that got bigger and bigger and bigger. And obviously people didn't read them as a warning anymore. They just read it as some patronizing message from people they didn't care about. And it's also the case that it's not the most ignorant who ignore warnings. Um, after 2009 H1N1 pandemic influenza, it was healthcare workers who refused to be inoculated because they saw through Margaret Chan's assertion that the whole of humanity was under threat. I'll finish, Claire, I know you <laughs> want me to. So I think safety's shifted from articulating threats and allowing us to choose to eliciting desired behaviors. That's the problem. Um, and I think it's easier for the authorities to manage compliant people than bolshy ones. But rather than run, hide, tell, I rather like Roy Lana's response to an Islamist breaking into his pub in uh, London Bridge, which was, fuck off, I'm Millwall, uh, and confronting, the, you know, and maybe some of that would not go amiss. And rather than presenting the Grenfell Tower inhabitants as voiceless victims uh, and praying for them, it would be better to remind ourselves that for years they had been actively complaining and campaigning. They were ignored when they were active and engaged. They're lauded when they're passive victims. Some great themes there, Bill. Thank you very much. Last year I, I wrote a book called I Find That Offensive and one of the themes was critiquing safe spaces in universities. So trying to understand why 
18-year-olds would demand that they felt safe when they went to college, safe and comfortable. Uh, we, I couldn't imagine anything more awful than going to university and demanding to feel safe. But anyway, in that context, I think Lenora has made a remarkable contribution to, in America and, and more broadly, and her colleagues in thinking about how we rear young people and how they kind of get to 18 and want to feel safe or feel so scared that they want to feel safe. So, Lenora. First of all, thank you for having me here, Claire, and for doing this amazing um, event. And quick question for Bill. You mentioned swan sneezing. Did you actually say that, or did I mishear Yeah, avian flu. Oh, okay. I was like... I thought swans sneezing was very, something I hadn't heard before. Let me just put it that way. I was like, wow, I was, I was going to bring that back to America. They're worried about swans. Can you believe it? They're crazy. Um, but in fact, I'm the one who's crazy, right? I'm America's worst mom. And as Claire said, I got that name because I let my nine-year-old ride the subway by himself because he'd been asking us. This wasn't a social experiment, and I did not realize my entire career depended on him taking the subway. Um, which it has for the last 10 years. But anyways, he'd been asking, can I please you know, take, us, take me someplace new and let me find my own way home? My husband and I discussed this, and, um, and our older son hadn't asked us this, so it was the first time we had to think about it. Our, our older son calls himself the control group. <laughs> um, so anyways, we decided <laughs> yes, and one sunny Sunday, um, I took Izzy with me to Bloomingdale's, a very fancy department store where we don't shop. And, um, and I left him in the handbag department um, after telling him that it was the day. It wasn't like, Mom? <laughs> Mom? Yeah, no, told him, okay, today's the day. And I went one way, and the handbag department is right above the subway entrance. And I know you call it the tube, but I, I can't do it. Um, so he went into the subway, he took it down, uh, he had to take a bus across town, and he came into our apartment levitating because he had done something by himself that he knew he was ready for, and we let him do it because we believed in him. Um, and I didn't write a story about it immediately, even though that's my job. I'm a newspaper columnist, because it um, didn't strike me as that extraordinary. But after I talked to some of the other fourth grade moms who were waiting for their kids to get a little older, you know, 38, 39, um, I wrote a column, Why I Let My Nine-Year-Old Ride the Subway Alone, and two days later, I was on um, four different talk shows, including the biggest one, um, which is called The Today Show, and, and it was really fun, and uh, Izzy was on with me, and you know, we're, we're dressed nicer than usual, and they fix your hair, which I wish somebody would do here. Anyways, and um, it's, it's bantering back and forth, but then at one point, the interviewer's voice went low, and she leaned over, because this is sincerity on TV, and um, she said, but Lenore, how would you have felt if he never came home? <laughs> and I'm like, I'm like I, I do have that spare son <laughs> at home. You know, he, uh, you know he's, he's fine. He was smart enough not to ask this. Uh, I didn't know what to say. And it literally took me four years to figure out why was I always so flummoxed when this question would come up, because it came up in almost every interview. And I finally realized um, I didn't have anything to say, because it's obvious how I would feel if he never came home. Guess what? Bad, OK? I would not feel, well, you know, I, you know, what can you do? You'd feel terrible. You'd feel recrimination, regret. Guilt. Why did I do this? Why, you know, he could. I just could have been with him. I could have followed him. I could have had a, a, a private eye following him. Why did I do it? But um, the reason I didn't have the answer is because that wasn't a question. It was an accusation. 
And the accusation is, why weren't you thinking of how horrible you'd feel having left your son to do anything on his own when you could have been with him? And that has become almost a catechism in my society and I think yours, which is that you have to go to the very worst case scenario first. That's how this session was described. Um, you go to the very worst case scenario first and work your way back from it. And when you do that and you've started imagining, you know, the death and the funeral and the an interviews on Anderson Cooper and the, you know, you just, at some point you say it's not worth it. And that's what you're supposed to be doing as a parent, is deciding that nothing is worth it. You can't let them do anything on their own because something terrible could happen. So I started my blog the weekend after um, the column came out. Um, the blog is Free Range Kids and now it's called Let Grow. Um, to say that actually I love safety. You know, who doesn't love safety, okay? You know, and I love helmets and car seats and seat belts and mouth guards. Um, but the idea of always having to be with the kid because you don't trust the outside world at all didn't make sense to me. I mean, we're living in the safest times in human history. I live in the safest city in America, even though nobody believes it, safest large city. Um, and that's when I started hearing how much has changed in America in terms of letting our kids do anything by themselves, like parents I don't know if the same thing happens here, but parents are walking their kids to the bus stop. Is that happening here? Yeah. Yeah? Or driving them? Driving them to the bus stop. Driving them to the bus stop, and then they wait to make sure that the transfer is successful. <laughs> it's like, you know, it's like a, a fertilized egg, whatever. They have to get on the, on the bus, and then they can drive off. And we, we even have seen it in the change in our wording, because in America, when I was going to school um, as a kid, it was arrival. You know, the bell rang and it was arrival, and then the bell rang in the afternoon and it was dismissal. And I don't know about you, but in America now it's drop off and pick up, right? Because the kids are you know, like FedEx packages, basically. Oh, I got to drop off at nine, then I got to get it, pick it up, and take it to football. And the assumption is that there is always an adult involved now and that anything terrible could happen at any time. And so, um, I'll just give you two quick examples. In America, you're not allowed, the Girl Scouts are not allowed to toast a marshmallow unless they have one knee on the ground. Why not? <laughs> Why? They might fall in. They might fall in. I, I, like, you're a GP. How many, how many immolated Girl Scouts <laughs> have, have you seen? Zero, okay. And, and the Cub Scouts, a guy came and taught this woman's child how to do whittling, right? With, and, and afterwards, he gave each kid a stick and a... A glove, that's right, you're thinking you're, you could be on health and safety, right? <laughs> uh, they gave each kid a potato peeler, you know, which is impossible to, to whittle with. Uh, we would have no totem poles in America today if the Native Americans had had, to, you know, potato peelers. But the idea was, once again, it was seen in the case of the worst case scenario. Somebody could die. Somebody could, I don't know, whittle off an arm. And, uh, you know, it would, it would take some doing, but, you know, they're bored. Uh, I have one minute left, so I just want to say that these fears have seeped into law now, and that's what particularly concerns me. So two years ago, a mom uh, named Maria overslept because she'd been spending all night with an aunt who died. So she got home at five in the morning. At eight in the morning, when her kid was supposed to get up, she was still asleep. So the kid gets up, gets himself breakfast, goes outside in his clothes, thank God, um, and uh, there's no bus. He's missed the bus. So he starts walking to school. This is so unusual now to see a child by himself walking to school that somebody called the cops. The cops came. They said, what happened? Oh, my mom overslept. Oh, okay. And so they drive him to school. They turn around. They came back to Maria's house. They knocked on the door. Where's your son? Oh, he must, oh he's got to get up. Oh, I overslept. And the, she says that the cops said to her, you're despicable. 
And so they put her in handcuffs, they put her in the cop car, they took her to the police station. If you look on my blog, you can see the, the mug shot. And it's, it's, that was two years ago. They're still dealing with the repercussions. The, the, the authorities got involved. She's raising her kids wrong. She let them go to, you know, a child was out alone. Obviously, she's very irresponsible. And literally, she's still um, dealing with the courts. So when paranoia about our kids seeps into law, um, we are all guilty of believing the odds and believing in our kids. Great examples of some of the issues there. Uh, thank you so much, Lenore. Right, Terry, your thoughts. How can I follow that? <laughs> <laughs> Besides the fact you stole half my thunder, I mean, that is so entertaining. Did you put your kid on the subway? <laughs> <laughs> but, but you're right. I mean, I, in, in Australia, I mean, uh, uh, where we live, uh, we've got about five schools within a, within a kilometre radius. And all these... Uh, Big SUVs come in at half past eight in the morning. They all rush out at three o'clock in the afternoon. And, and, and the kids probably only have to walk about 100 yards to get to school. It's just amazing. And when I grew up in the 60s, or I was a kid in the 60s, I mean, uh, I was pushed out the door at uh, 10 past eight, had to get to school half past, had to walk a mile, a mile to get there, and nobody seemed to bat an eyelid. So, and that's really what I really want to talk about in a way, because... Uh, you know, obviously I come from Australia with an accent like this. And, <laughs> and we've got a reputation, you know, land of the bronze Aussies, the Anzacs, the uh, um, Shane Warne. Um, but, uh, uh, but certainly we you know, have that larrikin reputation because we're descended from convicts. We're supposed to cock a snook at authority and tell, you know, tell you know, policemen to go and get stuffed and all that sort of thing. But we are the most nanny state regulated country in the world, and I reckon. Um, uh, somebody, a public health academic called Simon Chapman uh, wrote an article a couple of years ago which was uh, uh, basically he listed 150 ways in which the nanny state was good for you. 150 ways, you know, really anything from building safety to, uh, to, to mandatory seatbelts. But the point is that uh, we can't even ride a bicycle in Australia without putting a helmet on. So. In Melbourne, where I live, uh, we uh, introduced uh, our version of Boris bikes. But um, unfortunately, they've really gone bust because the problem with it is that you have to actually put a helmet on. You have to buy a helmet or rent a helmet and then wear it or else you can't actually go on a bike. So when Arnold Schwarzenegger popped in to say hello a year or so ago, he actually got one of these bikes off the rack and he got pulled up. You know, he, was, he was despicable um, uh, because he didn't wear a helmet. So. Now, this is the type of country that I, I come from, that I live in these days. But can I put it this way? I'm not, a, I'm not an out-and-out out libertarian. I'm a, I'm a conservative, small-c conservative by nature. And regulation, sensible regulation is good. I mean, it is, you know, rules keep society together. They, they are part of the glue that uh, keeps us as we are. And certain rules and regulations with regard to public safety are good, I mean, uh, and, and, and essential. I mean, as, as sadly we've found out here with, with the Grenpool tragedy, but, uh, and certainly I think that's got authorities thinking around the world. But the thing that I'm concerned about is there can be too much regulation, there can be too little trust in people's common sense. The fact that everybody in this room is a sentient being who's capable of using their brain for good is lost on authorities. Uh, and I think that part of, part of the problem is that uh, I think our officials and our MPs have too much to do with their time. Uh, it, in Australia, we had a hung parliament a, a few years ago. 
uh, under Julia Gillard as Prime Minister. And, uh, um, and certainly people thought, gee, our politics is chaotic. But then other people came back and said, yes, but they actually managed to pass 300 acts and 6,000 regulations. And I thought, how do you measure that as a quality outcome? I mean, that's, uh, that's crazy. But the thing in my mind is it's important to get the balance of regulation right. Um, one of the things, I was thinking, actually, going back uh, 80 years now, uh, the nanny state actually started in, in, in the UK, and actually in the, um, uh, I think it was the Court of Appeal. There was a, if there are any lawyers in the audience, I think you all know the case of Donoghue and Stevenson, uh, where, where um, uh, somebody uh, found a snail in their, their bottle of ginger pot, and, uh, and uh, the you know, the, the judges found that uh, the company owed them a duty of care, but a fellow, one of the judges, Lord Atkin, uh, uh, enunciated what they call a the neighbour principle, which uh, he, he asked, who is your neighbour? And then he said, if I effectively have a duty of care, if you could reasonably foresee that uh, something might happen to them in relation to things that you do. But the neighbour principle is great, and I think that should govern public policy, it should govern regulation, it just should govern the way we live and deal with each other. Um, but what has happened over the last 80 years, uh, certainly in the UK, very much in Australia, I would think even in the US, um, is that that has been interpreted by policymakers and regulators to the nth degree. So that reasonable foreseeability is looking at the one in a thousand, or actually more one in 10,000, or 100,000, or a million. So in Australia, in Sydney, for instance, we have uh, lockout laws so that. Uh, um, last drinks must be served at 1am in, in the busiest part of uh, Sydney, which is called King's Cross. Uh, because somebody had a, a basically was king hit and hit the, hit the footpath and um, sadly died. But the thing is, that was a, an extreme occurrence. It was, a, it was wrong, it was criminal, don't get me wrong, but it was an extreme occurrence. Most people, almost everybody, uh, as responsible in terms of the way they consume alcohol, the way they, they deal with others uh, socially. And to penalise the entire community because of one ex uh, isolated incident, uh, it was taking, really taking that uh, foreseeability principle off, off, the, off the scale. And, you know, the bicycle helmet uh, case that I was mentioning before in, in Melbourne, uh, exactly the same thing. But the chances of somebody hitting themselves on the, on the, you know, falling off the bicycle and hurting themselves, yes, I mean, you have to take that into account, but you can't actually shut down human activity to do it. But it does seem to me, though, that when we talk about uh, uh, things like trigger warnings, uh, banning activities, uh, trying to avoid hurting people's feelings, and let alone repairing injured bodies, uh, we're, we're actually uh, we're living in fear, and, and in a sense, you know, another Australian uh, icon is the film Strictly Ballroom back in the 90s, and its slogan was, uh, a life lived in fear is a life half lived. And it seems to me that we are allowing our society to make all of our lives be half lived in that, that, that way. So get our regulation right, be sensible about it, but trust people to do what they are capable of doing, which is using their heads and their common sense. Thanks, Terry. Richard, your take on this. Thank you. Um, I think I've been invited along to channel my inner Jackie Smith from the, uh, the conversation. You know, uh, 
in politics, traditionally, the right has been in favour of deregulate and to move out of the way and allow a kind of laissez-faire, and the left has sought to uh, regulate and control other people's lives. And that is broadly the kind of debate as it uh, happens. And I think it is almost in that debate that there are lots of problems. And we've heard lots of things said that just put this into a really glib or, uh, or, or diametrically opposed debate, as if somehow... Um, you know, you are, if, if you dare to say you're in favour of, uh, of safety belts or whatever, you're suddenly nanny state, which was what the debate was at the time. And every time something suggests there is any kind of regulation, the only response seems to be that that is a terrible overreaching of the nanny state, rather than debate whether that regulation is good or not. And that almost seems to be the problem, that this kind of meta-politics takes over, rather than to have the particular debate about whether that thing is particularly good or not. Now, we have all know of examples where essentially an overzealous um, kind of officer somewhere in, uh, you know, an, uh, that we might never meet in a council writes a report that takes that um, kind of nth degree circumstance and probably has it as a recommendation that the Daily Mail write up as if it is just been written and signed off by the Queen as primary legislation and it then becomes this kind of sensationalist thing that gets um, echoed around the world. And we all see things that just annoy us on a kind of primitive level, that when you see a kettle and it says on the side, be careful, this might be hot. And you're just like, well, obviously. Like, the, um, I, I think I have enough agency to be able to um, work that out. And equally, you then have people who try to overact overreact to things. So I remember being part of a voluntary organisation where our treasurer had run off with certain hundreds of pounds, and the rest of the committee tried to put in regulations on the committee to stop people stealing. I was like... We have a law. It's called, it's illegal to steal. Like, this person was determined to do it. There is no more processes you can put in place. It doesn't matter what you'd have done. You, there was a process that two signatories had to do it. He forged one of them and went to the bank and cashed the money. Like, some people are so determined to do these things. Stop writing more rules to make them stop. Because if they're not scared of it being illegal, the fact that it's on page 36 of your internal directory is not going to make that more likely, and you often see this with things like child protection, where people suddenly don't understand what's happening and fear that there's um, stuff happening. And you might have seen there's a very good Australian comedy, um, uh, Summer Heights High, where this slightly um, ridiculous uh, teacher overreacts, and they act, and they they simulate a paedophile being in the building and how you should <laughs> react to um, to said situation and. Uh, lo and behold, it doesn't react particularly well. But obviously, there is a really key regard that we want to have for our children's safety. If there are known people out there that are seeking to, uh, you know, uh, target people hurt because they are vulnerable, and we have an easy ability to identify those people and exclude them from that position of power, we should take it where possible. But equally, if somebody turns up to a school once and is, is always with another adult or two or three and never in a situation where they'd be with a child on their own, it would be ridiculous that they were unable to come to a school because of that. So you've got to always keep these things um, in their, um, you know, in proportion. There is a kind of lexicon at the moment that this is somehow we are coming overburdened with this stuff. Yeah. And the reality of that, I'm afraid, is just not true. You've seen under, since 2010, the then coalition government, Conservative, Liberal, and now the Tories uh, ruining the country on their own, um, bring in this kind of bonfire of red tape that they are so proud about. They blag that 2,400 pieces of regulation uh, has been cut. Uh, as if this is somehow a virtue in itself. I'm sure some of those, their time might have been and gone, but others, uh, we might regret their existence. We now have 
at-work health and safety legislation that was written in 1970s, not the ones that were written in the 90s or 2000s that reflect many of the things where uh, individuals and corporates were sometimes con um, involved in uh, making decisions knowing that they were putting their staff at risk and sometimes had terrible uh, consequences. I, I don't want to make glib points about the Grenfell stuff, but when you see politicians brag that they've brought down fire assessments for some of these things from six hours to 45 minutes, as if that's somehow bringing efficiency to the system, you should ask questions. But the one that I think I want to highlight that has been particularly pernicious is the rise in acid attacks that we've seen across our city. Now, we shouldn't ever take away the agency from, in particular, it's normally young men who are going round, getting acid and throwing it at people, whether it's to steal their moped or whatever else is happening. But the government has, in their deregulation that they are very proud of, got rid of the Poisons Act from 1972, totally reworked it, took away the uh, Poisons Authority, removed the licensing from local authority and put it as a kind of uh, form you fill in and occasionally send off to the Home Office. And now you've got available, pretty easily, hydrochlorified acid, sodium hydrate and ammonia that people are using um, to terrible consequences for people. And there is a way in which it's not some overburdened state that you can regulate those things out of easy use from people that would save people day in, day out, that I don't think any of us would really object to. But because we have got into this silly um, situation that somehow it is great to get rid of red tape, and that is a virtue in itself, we now have this phenomenon that is hitting the streets of London and people will never get to literally look back from it. The last point I'd like to make very quickly is about the situation in Borough Market. And you very sweetly talked about the fact that I went back um, and paid my bill and that seemed to kind of capture uh, something with people. One, I think it was a very British thing uh, to be seen to do uh, to go and pay your bill. I didn't think it was quite as extraordinary as other people um, thought it was. The business was closed for 11 days. We'd had a lovely meal. Their staff had gone above and beyond. And I think if you're a young chef who's not from this country, that when they hear there is a terrorist attack that could be as bad as Paris, that they run out a glass door, put their foot in it and hold it closed. If that doesn't get you doubled your tip, I don't know what does. And I think that we should all rally around those people who will be clearly having strong mental health responses to it, as well as potentially gone out without wages and tips for 11 days, etc. Um, etc. And of course, those people return to Borough Market, not like me because I want to, but and out of defiance, but because they have to for economic interest. And I think that should have been um, considered widely, and I think the government should do more um, to help those people. But one of the things that happened is that the sense of going back and not being scared was really important to me and my friends who decided this on the night that we, we wanted to, to do this. It wasn't actually a, a media thing, as some people um, have interpreted, but we just thought it was the right thing to do. But also, Borough Market is one of my favourite places in what is the, my favourite city in the world, and I wasn't going to let these three cowards win, and if that was one of the ways I could show them, then it was really important to do so, and you might have seen that I always said that if drinking gin and tonics, flirting with handsome men and hanging out with brilliant women is what upsets these people so much, we should do it more, not less. And I think that, again, seemed to capture that sense of London's defiance. I don't want to speak for other people's um, uh, situation in this, but for me, that's how I felt about it. I wanted a great big two fingers up to these cowardly people. And generally, the response was um, amazing. Uh, there was this one particularly unpleasant Telegraph journalist who contacted me on Twitter or, or one of the social media things that called me a Pollyanna, an apologist for Islamization, for terrorism, and that I was uh, aiding and abetting their next attack. And this was 
I thought one particularly offensive, but obviously ridiculous. And I you know, posed to her very strongly is, what laws would you want there to be in place to prevent people from hiring a van and owning knives and then deciding to use those things? And the idea that, that, that somehow the law that would prevent that would make us a better, freer uh, sit, uh, a city, country or society, I think is ridiculous. And I think the best retort uh, to these people is that we go on from it. I was asked to do something after the Barcelona attack and the, the interviewer asked me, what would you say to ISIS if you met them? And I would, I, said, I would say, I've had more dates with gay men since you terrorised our city. Thank you very much. But I don't think that's what you were intending. <laughs> I think that would probably upset ISIS more than anything else. I'll leave it there. Thank Claire, you. your thoughts. Thank you. Just before I start, uh, <laughs> just in case, you know, you never really know what, what's going to fall from the ceiling. by a pen. I jest, of course, but uh, very soon we may well have to wear crash helmets uh, in public buildings. Before I start, I'm amazed at this new trend, and some other people, where you've got small children on these toy scooters wearing crash helmets and knee pads and arm pads. What danger can they possibly get to? But I'm here to argue against the motion. So I'm going to stick to health, because that's what I know about. And I'm going to stick to things I know. So... Listen, the health and safety agenda has transformed our lives, and there is no doubt about that. Over the last 10, 20, 30, 50 years, it has transformed the way we're treated, it has transformed the way we live, and it has transformed our health. And let me just give you some day-to-day -day examples, which we just take for granted. Labelling of medicines, safe labels, safe information. The fact we have child, uh, child safety locks on medicines. When I started my life as a, as a GP, as a doctor, so often in casualty, children would accidentally take overdoses. Simple device, a cap on the top of a medicine. The, the fact that you can't buy, uh, if you go and try 100, buy 100 paracetamol now, you can't buy 100 paracetamol because you only need to take 20 or 30 and you can die. So we now sell paracetamol in blister packs and in much smaller amounts. These very simple things, which weren't around a few years ago, which you probably don't even know because they're so normal. Immunisations. Every one of you, hopefully, in this room has had your childhood Imunvax. When I was a young GP, we still saw measles. We saw measles again about two decades ago when people uh, stopped uh, immunising. But certainly when I was a child, children still died, still had permanent deafness uh, from developing mumps or, or, or the other basic childhood. And if you're of a certain age, such as I am, you still had children in your school who had polio. These have gone because of the safety agenda. You can say, well, that's not safety, but it certainly is safety. Not just labelling of medicines, but not so long ago, there'd be tales of taking off the wrong leg. Not nice, really, if you've gone to have an amputation and they amputate the wrong leg. <laughs> removing the wrong kidney, again, very sad if your only functioning kidney is removed. It happens. <laughs> and now you have safety checklists before every operation. These happen every day, unknowingly, because of the safety agenda. And behaviour. 
Yes, seatbelts. You have to make behaviour mandatory, by the way. There is no point the nudge agenda, nudging people. It has to be enshrined in law. But once it's enshrined in law, such as seatbelts, again, when I was a, a, a young doctor working in casualty, we would see the most horrendous facial injuries, not death, but facial injuries of people going face first through a windscreen. That have completely gone now, completely gone. Drink driving. It used to be one for the road. You remember that? One for the road. Can you imagine, ladies and gentlemen, not just don't drink and drive, but have an extra one just for your journey home? And another very basic health and safety that's coming is washing your hands. It wasn't that long ago that, I mean, a hundred years ago, doctors didn't wash their hands because they were too arrogant to even think that they needed to do it. But ten years ago, doctors, nurses didn't wash their hands. So very simple things. But as you've heard, there has to be a balance, and clearly you shouldn't be wearing high-vis jackets indoors. We now have the problem in my world of pre-testing, of testing you all, just in case you're going to die. And I have a serious issue for you here. You're all going to die. I hmm. can't stop it. But there is a medicalisation issue that I have to test you to find hidden diseases just in case you're going to die from them. And what we're building up is the fear, the what if, what if. I can also guarantee every single one of you in this room will have a pre-illness. We've also got the rising anxiety of, of, of trying to, uh, as I said, over-medicalisation. We've got uh, excluding children from school because of chickenpox. In my day, I used to have chickenpox parties because the yeah. best time to get chickenpox is in your early childhood because then you just get it. And it's... We've got over-medicalisation. Everybody in this room over the age of 50 should be on a statin. Why? Because you might have a certain percentage of the risk in 10 years just in case that something bad might possibly happen. I can't estimate that risk. I can only give it to you on a population level, on an individual level. Uh, vitamins to children. Have you seen those adverts on the tube? Vitamins to children. They've got this really bright-looking Asian boy playing with some sort of Lego model, and it sort of says something like, if you want him to succeed, give him vitamins. No! No! If you want him to succeed, give him a healthy diet, reasonable parents, and make him use the underwork, the under, uh, the tube, the uh, underwork. Um, <laughs> and finally, <laughs> the underwork. And finally, um, to be shot down my, by my colleagues, the flu vaccination. Again, the safety agenda, the what if, the what if. We've been told we're going to have a disastrous flu epidemic this year. We might. I, I mean, I'm not the chief medical officer. So it is all a balance. And as somebody already in this panel has said, we get uh, fear fatigue. And even I, as a doctor, get fear fatigue. I don't know what to tell you to be fearful anymore about. I really don't. But actually, if we go back to the original, the, the nanny state and where I come from, I think on balance, things have got better for us having the health and safety mm. agenda. I think they have got better. But I think for our responsibility, and certainly my responsibility going forward, is to be honest to you. I wore a cycle helmet just now, and you've already heard about the cycle helmets. What will happen in Australia now is you will have a reduction in head injuries due to cycle accidents, but it will be because fewer people will be cycling. And actually, what I will say to you, as a highly intelligent audience, is that you have to question these assumptions. So when you see the headlines, because they will happen, that the cycle, the number of head injuries in Australia has reduced, in fact, it will have plummeted, mm -hmm. it is because fewer people. The safest way of preventing cycle injuries 
is to put a knife in the middle of a steering wheel of a car, pointing forward into the chest of the driver, because that will make the driver a safer driver. And that is the only way. So, ladies and gentlemen, I leave to you, this is a balance about the safety agenda. The important thing is to weigh it up and not work on the lobbyists, the activists who say, well, I was saved by. You have to do this on population level. You have to do it with evidence. You have to do it with consultation. And finally, you have to do a risk-benefit uh, analysis before you expect all of us to adhere to a behaviour that one or two, as you've heard with the falling over a, a tripwire in the middle of the night, pissed out of your brain, have to adhere to uh, and take away our civil liberties. Thank you very much. Array of issues and balance of thoughts there. Um, and there's lots of things I want to say, but I, I'm, I'm going to just take a couple of people from the audience first, then I'm going to come back and just pick up anything that Bill and Lenore might want to say, because you haven't spoken for a while, and then I'll just keep going in and out uh, uh, to the panel. To know what you think about how... Sweden, which has the longest, safest country in the world, compares on depression because they had the highest level of suicide. And I knew someone there who said they lived in a block of flats where you could only live there if you were single and childless, that everything had a childproof lock on it. <laughs> and that this was going too far. And it just reminded people who didn't have children every day that they didn't have children. <laughs> oh, God. And as they had the highest suicide rate, particularly for young men, I wonder if you think there might be some sort of correlation? I'm from Greek background. I've been living in the UK for 10 years, working here. And the first thing that struck me when I came here is the level of warnings I was facing everywhere. From mind the gap, warnings here, your cup is hot uh, or too hot. The, the most extreme version of this I've seen is you watch the news and when it comes to sports, you're warned that if you don't want to know the result of the two football teams, you should pop oh, out of the room. So I'm thinking, if I were to faint, does the BBC, are, are they fearful that I was going to sue them if I were to faint? So if this has gone a bit too far. So that's on a, on, a, on, a, on a joking note. On a more serious note, I would like to challenge the gentleman who spoke about deregulation and Grenfell Tower. Uh, because I happen to be a doctor and I would like to endorse what Dr. Gerada said earlier. Uh, the, the fact that uh, the NHS is a safer place, uh, it doesn't mean that there aren't uh, deaths happening on a daily basis. So we need to be distinguishing between regulation and human error or the result of human error or indeed corporate negligence individual or corporate negligence. So the metaphor is coming to the Grenfell Tower, which was hinted by one of the speakers, but I wasn't sure how the other speakers um, thought about that. Was the incident of Grenfell an issue around deregulation or lack of regulation, or indeed the fact that regulations were in place, people had been forewarned, there'd been a similar incident as far as I can remember a year or two far back with another fire somewhere else, but nobody really took action. So one thing is a lack of safety, another thing is human negligence, human error, and people not acting as they should. I enjoyed the, the, the panel's discussion. It struck me listening to a number of people that um, what's at issue here is the old public choice uh, theory problem, uh, which is that no politician, no bureaucrat ever lost their job uh, for being too safe. Uh, and the risk all the time to people in positions of authority is that they might just let that one case get under the bar that they should have regulated and didn't. And therefore the constant uh, tendency is to increase regulation just in case. And I wonder if anybody on the panel has any thoughts about how you can change the incentive structures uh, for pol politicians and bureaucrats 
uh, to make it more worth their while to look at what we're losing when you bring in these regulations as well as what they're gaining. Okay, thanks. Bill, I'm going to ask you, it seems to me that there's a, there's a performative element to this, or a kind of box-ticking element um, um, that, that institutions go through. But even in relation to Grenville, I mean, a lot of the fire and, and planning regulations that have been brought in and implemented that are costing a lot of money to local authorities, when I talk to people who seem to know about this thing, they'll say, oh, they're just putting sprinklers in so that nobody can say that they shouldn't have sprinklers or they're taking cladding down when they don't know whether it's the cladding. And it's like because they don't want anyone to think that they're not taking people's safety seriously. Mm. And that, that kind of bad faith, performative element seems to me to be quite destructive, as destructive as over as the kind of crying wolf thing, because you just kind of get to a point where you just don't know anymore which regulations are worth implementing or not. So people get to the point where they think, oh, well, there's no point doing any of them then, because, you know, it's just they're just being done for the sake of it. But anyway, Bill. Well, I think Michael Power, who's a professor of economics at the London School of Economics, wrote a piece on the audit explosion about 15 years ago where he made that point. He, he looked at how we had gone from a content audit to process audit, whereby you, you audit the process, have we gone through the correct checks and you have the checklist, actually the content hardly matters or it becomes secondary. Uh, and one of the best examples of that, of course, was Deepwater Horizon, that BP, unfortunately for BP, platform that uh, blew up in the Gulf of Mexico, where, you know, in their risk management manual, they discussed how they were going to protect the wildlife in the Gulf of Mexico, including seals and sea lions, which don't exist in the Gulf of Mexico, which shows you that they basically submitted a manual from another exploration platform. Nobody even read it. Uh, at least not at the audit level. Um, we can, you can never be too safe, the gentleman said. Well, I, I, you know, as a public official, actually there was a time when the attitude was different, and that's why I think the important thing here is cultural change. You know, I think that um, certainly military leaders in the Second World War who would have erred more on safety, hi, you know, run, hide, tell in the Blitz would have been drummed out for uh, attacking public morale. Um, and as not showing sufficient fighting spirit. Um, more recently, the chief medical officer at the time, I forget which one it was, Asian flu or Hong Kong flu, I think it was a guy called Plum, he said there's a new flu during the rounds, we don't expect it to be very serious, it'll be another, and of course he was catastrophically wrong. Was he drummed out of office? No, he was knighted the next year uh, because he maintained public morale in the face of something that on the whole the authorities thought very little could be done about. So I, I think the cultural factors are important and I hear Claire's points about health and safety have transformed our lives. I'm not, it's not just health and safety though, it's not just, you know, smoking was coming down before the obsession with smoking, uh, people were driving more safely before, uh, you know, the seatbelts became mandatory, you know, the fatalities, um, the knife she talks about actually ironically in the steering column, uh, where in the old days of course steering columns didn't collapse and so they, they really did have that, uh, but anyway, the, obviously the market has no incentive on the whole in killing its customers, so uh, you know, a lot of these things happen, but the, I think the key factor, I'll finish on this, is that in the past, the decisions that were made for our safety were agreed by our representatives and we had a sense of relationship to our representatives. We had a more organic, direct sense that they did represent our views. Whereas in an age where we're disengaged from politics and our representatives, we don't even know their name, they may well continue to do well-meaning things and, so, and on the whole you wouldn't dispute it, but it's quite dangerous when there's that disconnect. And it's the disconnect between those deciding and those having to live by it 
that concerns me. By the way, if I want to do an acid attack, I go and buy a car battery, surely tip it out, and I've got plenty. You know, like, you cannot, just the same as you can't ban people hiring vans, it's just not going to be the solution. Um, and I, I just think we have to have a realistic sense of proportion um, as well as what we can do about things. And, you know, the prevalence of acid attacks represents something very different. Okay. Just two little points. One is on this one. I'm always struck by the flash photography warning on the TV. It seems to me bizarre. I want to know if there's ever been a case of epilepsy by somebody watching television, but it's ridiculous. The other one, if you want to know, is bare below the elbow. There's no evidence for that, which now every single... The other one is disposable equipment in hospitals. That costs vast sums of money to the environment, vast sums. Uh, so every single instrument we use, the just-in-case we get CJD, there's been no, no reported case, but this is it. Uh, and then the other ridiculous one, which I have to do, which is asbestos training. Not asbestos, uh, uh, Legionnaires, Legionella's training, Legionella's disease. Apparently, uh, as every health professional has to learn about this, just in case the air conditioning unit, which has nowhere, which isn't anywhere because we don't have air conditioning, might possibly in the surgery infect the water supply and therefore might infect you vicariously. These are ridiculous things. And finally, but we're all complicit, because if there's an accident, you all demand an inquiry. In fact, you go marching on Whitehall demanding a public inquiry. And it's these public inquiries and inquiries that fear this nanny state and fear the health and safety culture, because the outcome always finds something. And in health, it's always poor communication. <laughs> always. So well, there's no point in having an inquiry, because we know what it is. Not that poor communication caused the event, but that's the outcome of any inquiry. So. Okay, Lenore, do you want to come back on anything at this point? Or do you like to some more? Um, I was just going to talk about the, the depressed Swedes. Yeah, um, right. yeah. <laughs> oh, sorry. Depressed Swedes. Um, <laughs> colon. The idea that if you're living in a place that is, I mean, I'm not talking about the child locks for the poor people without the kids always staring at the child lock. I'm talking about being in a place that is so safe. You were talking about Sweden being the ultimate safety machine. I guess that's the Volvo. Um, and that's the ad for it in America, is it's the ultimate safety machine. But anyway, uh, there is, it seems to me that when you are living in a, in a society that has only decided that safety is the only thing, and it's, uh, that's all that matters in your life, not adventure, not a little free sign of risk, not ever doing something wrong and seeing how it goes. I mean, there's no spirit of adventure. There's no excitement. And... I, I don't know why this analogy, I guess because I'm in England and I keep seeing all these Victorian homes, but I started thinking about the Victorian women who were kept at home and they were in tight corsets and they had, you know, wonderful um, velvet everything. They were just given everything and told that this is the perfect life. You should be so happy. You don't have to work. You don't have to go out. Everything will be done for you. And they started getting all these weird things like neuralgia and the vapors and they were fainting on their fainting couches. And I think there's a connection between having everything done for you or done with you so that you're completely safe and and going crazy <laughs> because that's not what life is and if uh, that's it period uh people Can go I just crazy add when something on safe. the sweden yeah. suicide thing i just googled this just to see if it might be true and on an article about myths about sweden one of the most enduring myths surrounding sweden is that people are particularly suicidal this came about because of, or it's traced back to eisenhower saying that their social democracy led to sin nudity drunkenness and suicide and in fact Sweden isn't in the top 40 countries for suicide for per head, and it is in lower than average of OECD countries. So 
I think that might be worth just putting as but, part But of they the have way. got the highest rate of chemical sensitivity syndrome in the developed world, and I think that's connected to an obsession with getting rid of chemicals, so-called, you know, I, I think they had an environment minister who wanted to make Sweden chemical-free by 2020, which begs the question, what do you think she's made of? Um, and it's like, and, and I think we should never ignore, the power of suggestion has remarkable effects on the human mind. Post 9-11 and the anthrax attacks, everybody was sniffing strange substances in the air at the BBC and in Washington, uh, which turned out to be nothing. But, you know, that has an effect. Right, okay. What is the kind of existential mood, in a way, that wants safety as an outcome? That's, I mean, I, I, I have already mentioned, but I think it is significant that young people's demands for safe spaces is a t hot topic. And that is an extraordinary shift culturally in terms of what a young person would demand from an authority. They don't mean safety from physical attack. They, there's a kind of sense in which they want to feel safe and comfortable. So that's a kind of challenge to you all. Okay, right, back to the audience again. So I work in agriculture and I see all the time uh, increased regulations on things like biotechnology and people forgetting the fact that the longer that you wait, the more safety regulations you put in, the, the higher cost you could have on things like malnutrition. And I often wonder that um, safety is often rent-seeking. It's a way to create more um, or less competition and make it much more difficult or, or a higher tax on getting things to market. And I'm wondering, do you guys see that as a part of the safety culture? I'm very interested in um, mental health and how mental health affects young people particularly as there seems to be this huge emerging cultural consciousness of mental health, particularly among young people. And I wondered if the panel generally might comment on how you think you can sort of offer realistic definitions and versions of safety in an age where people are becoming increasingly conscious of mental health and as a result are becoming increasingly conscious of sadness and misery and often see that as something that sort of needs to be medicated away. And actually I think safety becomes synonymous with sort of an unrealistic idea of living in which you eliminate all the bad things. In the last session on um, groupthink, a, a young person made the point that um, the problems of being concerned with safe space happen before they get to university. And I've just gone through the training for safeguarding. Oh. Hmm? And the one thing that you're told, you must absolutely do, is take any expression, any concern, very, very seriously. So if you think in the educational system from, you know, preschool right through to 18, the obsession with safeguarding that nobody dare challenge, it's not surprising that people come out of that protected environment and think, as one of the students on Newsnight said, I'm paying my £9,000 for being comfortable. But it's not their fault, it's what the school system is doing to them. So going back to what we were saying earlier about incentives and um, about the kind of formative aspects of regulation, I, I work in... Um, the construction industry now, I've developed buildings, I've renovated them, but I also have had run, running music festivals and I own a, a nightclub. And so some of the most highly regulated industries really that there are. And what I've observed time and time again really over the sort of 10 or so years I've been in business is that um, the, the problems occur when compliance, and usually businesses and to some extent you know, the state undertakes compliance to mitigate risk in terms of, of risk to the business being sued or risk to one's own career, but the, the problem with compliance is that when people become obsessed with it, it becomes an, an end in itself, it becomes sort of fetishized. Often the most um, obvious and um, kind of common sense related risks are ignored. And I think that the, the, the obsession with the process and the, the, the box ticking that was discussed earlier to some extent can 
end up with businesses and, and, and public sector institutions losing sight of the actual purpose of the regulation in the first place. And in many respects, I've seen things become an awful lot more dangerous as a result of, of that obsession where, where the kind of common sense elements are ignored. And to give, to give you an example of a, of a recent um, kind of, I, I, what I thought was a rather a meaningless uh, kind of moment, really, in, in regulation that I, had to, I encountered. I, we recently spec'd out the renovation of a large warehouse, um, and we had the design, the fire, the fire, the fireproofing um, for, the, for the, built, the rooms and the corridors approved in principle. We went ahead and ordered the materials. During this sort of period um, following Grenfell, the building control officer went on holiday. And when he got back, um, sort of three weeks afterward, he, he reviewed the entire um, design for the building and came back to us and said, basically said that he'd made a mistake. Now, no one in our office believed for one second that he, he'd made a mistake. Um, the result was that the construction cost 10% more than we expected. And, it, and what we learned from that, really, was not so much, you know, the regulations didn't change while he was on holiday. He, he just became afraid of what, what might happen to his job if he hadn't specced it high enough. So I think what, what we, we, I see this so often, um, what, what, what you know, I've learned about regulation in business is that a lot of the time it's, it's there not so much to make people more safe, but to protect the individuals and organisations that are engaged in this kind of compliance game. As, as a teacher as well, it kind of relates to what's already been said. I mean, just getting here to London from uh, Siren Center doing the risk assessment forms, um, I've got to consider things like death walking down the street, um, what's the likelihood and death where we're going to stay tonight and for, for my students and things. Um, but relating to what was said uh, a minute ago, uh, it, I, I wondered what you kind of thought about the younger generation now, because we've got this whole idea about putting them in cotton wool and we've got the idea of a snowflake generation. How has regulation and the idea of suing people at any given chance or opportunity, how has that affected or affecting them kind of being brought up in kind of today's society? One of the things that I think is worth considering is we, we run this sixth form debating competition and um, there's always a danger, and I think Richard, you picked up on this, there is always a danger of kind of going like in, in the good old days when we didn't used to have any regulations at all and we all were risky, you know, it's like sort of like, it's a kind of daily mail slightly gone mad. But even in 10 years since we've been running the competition, the teacher's capacity to organise for students to involve themselves in a sixth form debating competition for sixth formers has become almost impossible. And the consequences of that are that, although we have lots of schools doing it, that, that, that certain schools just don't bother, right? And because you end up thinking, God, I can't, you know, it's too, it's, and, and the liability on the teachers is such that, that so the students get denied. And then I think on, on the students' part, there's also the resilience question, which is that if they're not exposed as individuals to risk, then how will they ever know how to negotiate the vicissitudes of life, let alone the possible genuine dangers? Um, and sadly, they're infantilizing themselves. And, or, you know, I mean, because it's, it, it, it might be our generation's fault that they're infantilized, but they, as young adults, also have to stop being like fat infants and grow up and say, we don't want to be infantilized anymore, if you see what I mean. Mm. Um, so, and wrap the cotton wool off instead of kind of going, give me more. Um, so uh, that's my message to the young. Um, yes. We've yeah, heard no. a lot about policy and regulations and how, you know, that sort of causes maybe this cotton wool society. But someone alluded to, I can't remember, about the, the sort of cultural mindset the shift in that that had to have happened to lead to this because policies obviously don't come out of thin air. And so I know it's a very complex web and it's a very chicken and egg situation, but I wondered if someone could maybe comment on 
what might have caused this cultural shift? Because something must have happened for these policies to come along. Yeah, so it seems to me that in discussing this stuff in a kind of a regulatory sense, you have to take into account the fact that um, we as humans with human brains are not very good at intuitively understanding risks, especially for kind of very rare events. Um, even stuff like weather forecasting, so if you say there's a 10% chance of rain, that on a given day, that means that if you run the day like 10 times over, there'll be rain in one of those. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, I think that's what it means, but like, even that, um, most people who look at the weather forecast don't necessarily know it means that, and even if you do, that doesn't, that's still quite a nebulous concept in terms of like, should I bring my umbrella type concerns. Um, so, and when you get to things like terrorism, then the risks are much smaller, but the consequences are much larger, so people tend to resort to kind of emotional concerns, but that's not in any sense a good qualitative way to do this. So I was wondering if there's, if any of you have any ideas on how to kind of get people to understand this stuff better on an intuitive basis and to teach people better ways to make judgments for themselves general acceptance that regulation in certain sectors um, in terms of health and safety has had benefits to society. But I wanted to pick up the cultural attitudes point that's been raised, um, particularly with regards to raising children. And I want to talk about judgment, hmm. about how as a society now we seem to have almost made parenthood and raising children into some kind of competition. And that actually we judge our own standards of childcare and raising children against what we see, especially with the advent of social media, other people's behaviours in raising their children, and we are far more, or it feels we are far quicker to pass judgement on what we deem to be acceptable standards of child rearing and other people, how do I, my child rearing measure up against those standards, and we seem far, far easier for us to actually go, Oh, well, that's just you know that's an awful thing for you to have done, and as a result, actually, we don't do things with our children or expose them to risk. Not because we don't actually believe they're capable or that we want them to have those experiences, but in that small chance it might go wrong, we fear being judged. Okay, uh, do either of you two want to pick anything up, Richard or Terry? In terms of, um, I think the question about uh, when did this start? I really think it had something to do with. Uh, uh, the West, you know, you know, Australia, UK, rest of uh, the, the um, Western world's a reaction to the uh, two world wars and depression. The fact that uh, uh, I think we did want to sort of come out of a, a period where life was very uncertain. We wanted a bit more certainty. We actually, you know, in the UK, of course, you know, with beverage and uh, uh, the growth of the welfare state, I mean, uh, there's a sudden move towards uh, expectations that government would uh, look after you and protect you. Now, I was very interested in what this lady said about child rearing becoming a competition and also what the panellist Lenore was saying about how she'd been very judged with the decision she'd made in regards to her own child. I've got five children ranging in age from 25 to 10 and I have seen fashions and changes and cultural shifts throughout that period in, and I do, you know, I certainly hear what you're saying about competition. I think it's more complex. I think most of us as parents Yes, we fear for our children, we, we want to protect them, but we also absolutely see the benefits of giving them autonomy, decision-making um, powers, knowing how to assess risk. And yes, I do hear about how complex and elusive that concept is. And I'm very interested in what the other gentleman over there was saying about young people's mental health and snowflake generation. I don't think it's a one 
tag sort of um, problem. It's obviously very multifactorial. And I, um, I just both I'm interested in what the panelists have to say with regards to how we pull all the threads together, assuming that we do all want much the same, or most of us seem to want much of the same in terms of balancing those risks and those benefits. Um, I just wanted to say that I think there's a distinct link between the more regulation we put on and the less people really appreciate the risk. So if you never fall over as a child, you suddenly don't really realise how much harm you're in. Um, yeah. Absolutely follows on from that. I was just wondering about the point at which regulation becomes debilitating because it stops people exercising agency on their own behalf. So for me, um, hearing about the Grenfell Tower, the, the most tragic thing for me was the people who stayed in their rooms because they'd been told um, not to evacuate in an emergency but to stay put and that was utterly tragic that people didn't have that agency to be able to leave the building but then by the same token very very quick point just on what Claire was saying about paracetamol being sold in small packages you know if somebody is really determined to kill themselves by committing suicide they just go to three different supermarkets you know I love it actually in the US where you can go and buy huge bottles of paracetamol and I'd be really interested to know about the comparative suicide rates. I think because we've removed the imperative for young people to act on their own behalf. Um, it means that when they go out to do things, they ask the authorities and they ask their parents and so on and so forth to do it for them because that's what their expectations have been at school um, and, and throughout their lives. Now, I work in a large metropolitan university and I've just heard first years come in and go uh, when they can't find their classes or when they can't find their exams or whatever. Nobody told me. Nobody told me. And that's because when they're at school, they, they expect to be told what to do. All their behaviour is the, 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 the imperative for them to act themselves has been removed. And I think that the problem therefore becomes what happens in universities and schools is that in order to try and solve that, we try and intervene more. And so we've got this thing in universities now called resilience training. And all that is, is telling kids how to be more resilient. And I just ask you, how can you train children or young people to be more resilient? You can't. You've just got to leave them alone. On a bit of like a tangent, but I kind of like the panel's opinion on the state versus parent debate in relation to safety regulations. So I come from Mexico, and for me it's very normal to see a dead body hanging from a bridge and dead people. This is something we grew up with and somehow we developed this thing you want to have that is the common sense or like animal sense of survival. We have that. However, when I arrived in London, I experienced a London bridge attack and I think never in my life I have felt more safe and protected. I live here alone and for a second it felt like the government or London or whoever was in charge of this were my parents. So I think we should challenge the government and the citizens that we are intelligent enough to not be bothered if it says hot coffee, okay, whatever, but on top of that, to have other activities to improve this like sense of common sense that we don't have anymore, but don't take this already things that seem like common sense, but maybe if now we say, okay, the society is ready to take them off, then the next generation, we will have to get them back again. So let's keep those, but challenge the system to have better activities to improve this thinking forward. Okay. So in reverse order. Thank you for bringing death up, because I think somebody said simplistically, I think this is because so few of us have seen death. And we just think now, 
all of us that we're going to have immortality. With respect to the question about mental health, it's very, very complex, but I've been trying to look at this with respect to doctors where we're seeing an explosion. And simplistically, and please don't attack me for this, I think it's a number of issues. I think it's contagion. I think if your friend's depressed, you're depressed. I think it's a case finding. I think we're going out and, and the awareness the issue. I think we've lowered the threshold uh, for, for, so if you fail an exam now, it's put into the mental health arena rather than into the other arena. And I also think, to a certain extent, it is if students who fail in medicine, they have, it's, a set, it's assumed to be a mental health issue, so they go through there. And the other one is nostalgia. I think we always assume, the diseases in my generation, that it was always good in the last generation, and it wasn't. We still had shit when I was growing up. In fact, we had paedophiles in the park, and you didn't ever do anything about it. So, you know, we just, I think it's it's, it's, a, it's a combination of that, so, but it's clearly more complex, but that's what I think it is. Richard? That's fine. I mean, there's so many things there. How on earth you can be expected to bring some of those things um, together? But I suppose we've got to have a positive attitude to risk. It is out there, and it will make us, in many ways, better people by being alert and aware of that. And I think the sense that we have agency over the things in our lives is a good sense that we need to engender in everybody to try and make sure that... Um, people live the, the, you know, to their full potential and that they can themselves avert some of the uh, risks that are out there that are unnecessary. Um, I think that, the, that what, you, what you've sometimes got is that because I believe in more collectivist society, that people have decided they should do that for us rather than us come together about how we should be safer and that there aren't things that we can do together rather than people will do stuff for us that make us safer, um, and I think that, that, that balance has got to be just constantly in check. And I suppose the two things I would just say is that taboos seem to me to be the most dangerous thing, so whether it's on mental health or parents trying or taking risks themselves, that if we let things build up as taboos, we don't talk about them properly and they get a power that they shouldn't otherwise have, um, and, and that really is uh, the kind of danger for us going forward. And I forgot my other one was, so I'll... OK, thank you very much. Um, Terry? Uh, look, I think very quickly, uh, the point I was going to make before, before you cut me off uh, was um, that we have become a very risk-averse society. Uh, it's not just our regulators and our policymakers, it's ourselves. And we've allowed that to happen. And, and it always strikes me as a bit ironic that uh, in other areas like, say, entrepreneurship, governments tell us that we must get out there, we must be adventurous, we must take risks. Yet, with so much of this, not just in terms of uh, low-level safety regulation, but at the very highest levels of our, our, our society, that we're actually being encouraged to, to, to stifle ourselves, to wrap ourselves in cotton wool and actually not take risks. And the, this culture is so pervasive now that it's actually going to spread beyond what we've been talking about to the entire way that we live and, 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 and work. Okay, thank you very much indeed. Uh, Lenore. Okay. Um I'm going to rattle through these in my New York way. Okay, what caused the cultural shift? Sense of control. We really think that we can control everything, and if something goes wrong, we look back and we say, if only they hadn't done blah, blah, blah. And generally with parents, if only they hadn't been right next to them every single second of every single day, that would have never happened. Therefore, the answer is, you must be watching your kids 24-7. It's, it's an unrealistic idea of how bad things happen and an unrealistic idea of parenting. Um, what can we do so that we can give children back some freedom and let parents let go a little bit? We have to make it um, normal and legal 
again for um, children to have some freedom. And one way that I'm starting to do with this new group called Let Grow um, is the Let Grow project in schools. It's free, it's fast, it's fun. The teachers tell the kids to go home and ask their parents if they can do one thing they feel they're ready to do that for some reason or other they haven't done yet. They can walk the dog, make dinner, get themselves to school. And if the whole school is doing it, the parents feel a little bit of pressure and it's a one-shot deal so they go, okay. And the first time the kid goes out and gets the bread for dinner and comes home through the door, it's like Izzy coming back to us from the subway. The parents are more elated than the kid. They can't believe how great it is and what a genius he is. And look at this bread. It's the best bread anybody ever made. I can't wait to have dinner. I'm going to eat the whole thing. Damn the carb diet. And and the reason is, once again, I finally realized it's mortality. It's like, why are the parents so excited when this one little thing happens and the kid does anything on their own? It's because the parents realize they can die. Their job as parents is done. At some point, they can die, and their kids are going to be fine. They're going to have enough bread for dinner. So try putting the free range, I'm sorry, now it's the Let Grow Project in at schools, and, um, and then let me know how it goes, because I think it's going to be transformative. Thank okay, you. Brilliant. Thank you. Um, three quick questions. On child rearing, I think have the confidence to do your own thing. Don't monitor what everybody else is up to. Make mistakes. We're all going to make mistakes, and we're all going to make, but the good thing is we'll make different mistakes because we're all different. Whereas when the state makes a mistake on our behalf, that's the same mistake for all our children. That's a catastrophe. Mm. Number two, on mental health, which I think Claire covered very, very well, but Claire will know that the former president of the Royal College of Psychiatry recently wrote a piece in the British Medical Journal called When I Hear Mental Health Awareness Week, My Spirit Sinks. Oh, and he received more replies to that, as you can imagine, in the current climate than uh, most, letter, mo most short articles do. And he had to point out that, of course, we're all in favor of reducing stigma, but raising awareness and encouraging awareness simply means uh, diluting resources for those really in need. Very final point. Why is there a demand for existential safety? I think people experience the world through themselves. In the past, we would have had a sense that we're not just alone in the world, we're connected, we're part of a whole, but we've given up on holistic explanations of the world, which used to be political, and therefore we're obsessed with the self. Um, because we no longer think it's possible to explain or transform the whole. We, actually, the Conservatives have got a lot to blame for that. They, they're the ones who gave up on holistic world explanations. They try and blame the politically correct left for everything. But, you know, a few uh, uh, academics spouting Foucault did not transform the world. Somebody had to give way first, and that's the bit that needs to be explained. Teach, teach how to judge better. Don't focus on, don't teach about risk. Just teach them maths, English, science, and let them make decisions for themselves. Can we thank a fantastic panel for making safety risky and interesting? <laughs>